Okay, Romans chapter 8. Did you spend time in Romans this last week? I gave you homework to do. I could always tell in class which students did their homework and which didn't. Uh, but uh, I hope that you did. I asked you to read the whole book of Romans, I think, and some of you did do that. Uh, this week I will ask you to read Romans 8 alone this week. All right, sometime this week, if you get through it and you think, boy, that didn't take long, do it again. Uh, just keep going through Romans chapter 8. There is, there is much more here than probably what we can uh, work through in all of our sermons we're going to put together in the course of this year. Uh, it just is a deep passage, and it seems to get deeper still. And so I encourage you to spend much, much time in Romans chapter number 8. Our topic is the security of the believer. And I believe we all have a need for this very topic. Whether you're one who, like me, wrestled with that over the years, and the Lord brought you to a place to understand Him better, and to appreciate what He has done, um, or maybe there are days, or maybe weeks, or maybe even months, as we go through life, as you know, it's not always very easy. And sometimes when things are difficult, we tend to put our doubts in departments we shouldn't. And one of them is whether or not the Lord really cares for us, whether or not He truly loves us, whether or not He's really got this under control. And I think these chapters are, this chapter particularly, is, is so good for our soul. And I trust that you're spending much time there. We will spend much time here. As I've already promised, that's our theme for 2017, to work through this. So if it takes us this year, we will. If we get done sooner, I'm sure that uh, that will be a surprise. If uh, we spill into next year a little bit, who knows? But Romans 8 is where we are. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that uh, not only is it available for us today to read, but... Even the words that we read today are so fresh. And that's because your word is alive. It's, it's not an old document. It's not a, a dusty uh, catalog of words from years ago. But it is a living document. It is a living word. And it is active. And even as we give ourselves to that time today to study it, we know, Lord, that you're at work in our hearts. And you... You do this amazing thing every time. You take the Word and you apply it to our lives and you help us to understand more clearly how to live in a world like ours, how to face the things we face, how to deal with issues, how to be encouraged and strengthened for the next step. And we come here today, Lord, as those who have empty gas tanks needing them filled, and only you can fill what we need today. So we submit ourselves to your word as we study through it today. Challenge us with it, Lord, and encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Romans 8, verse number 1. A very familiar passage, I think, to just about all of us here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Such refreshing words those are. You heard them. I read them. You might have said, I've heard those before, but listen one more time. Therefore, there is now no condemnation 
to those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Those are powerful words here. We've been on this theme since last week, and it seems so fresh to start, but the topic is security. Today, in the first four verses, we will look at secure from the past. Secure from the past. Freedom from judgment. Freedom from judgment. I'll give you a bit of an outline. Well, it's not a bit of a one. It's a bigger outline. But I'm going to give you the, the, the course of what we will see in the book of Romans, chapter number 8. Concerning security. Uh, the first four verses, like we start today, secure from the past. Uh, verse 1 through 4. That's a freedom from judgment. When we get to chapter 5, secure in the mind. Secure in the mind. Freedom from defeat. That's 5 through 8. In verse 9 through verse 13, secured in living. I don't have a freedom yet for it. I'm going to come up with that later. I haven't done that part yet. But secured in living, 9 through 13. In verse 14, all the way through verse number 18, 14 through 18, secure in our relationship with God. Secured in our relationship with God. In verse 19, all the way through verse 25, secured in our future. Secured in our future. There's a freedom there. And it's going to sound a little funny because you say, well, it doesn't seem to work right now. Freedom from discouragement. That's verse 19 through 25, secured in our future. Uh, Verse 26 and 27, secured in our weakness. There is freedom in prayer. Wait till we hit those verses. What an exciting little passage that is. Freedom in prayer. That's secured in our weakness. In verse 28 through 30, secured in God's program. In God's program. In the last section, 31 through 39, secured in God's love. And there's a freedom there too. There's a freedom from fear. So I'm still working on some of these pieces. But there's, you can see all the topics. If it's talking about prayer, it's talking about your thinking. If it's talking about your living, if it's talking about your past, it's talking about your future. It's talking about your relationship with God. If it's talking about His love for you, mark it. You are secure in those things. And I hope by the end of our study we're going to know that without any doubts whatsoever. Chapter 8, verse 1 is where we begin here with those refreshing words. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you have a King James Version or a version along that line, and you're saying, but Pastor, you left off the second half of the verse. Because you also see who walk, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You say, well, okay, uh, I'll tell you what, and I'm not even going to tell you one way or the other in this, but manuscripts over the years have debated, some have it, some don't. The commentators say, do they, don't they? Uh, the translators say, should they or shouldn't they, when they comes to that last part of the sentence. What's interesting is, it's the exact same phrase in verse 4. And so, we're going to get to it no matter what. 
Today, I want to spend time on the first chunk of that. New American Standard Version doesn't include the rest of that phrase, but it does bring it up again in a little bit. So we'll get to that when, when we address it in verse number four. But for today, let's take, well, we've got lots of information on the first part alone. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Secure from the past. I want to define that word past for a minute here, um, because we talk about the past, and you say, what, what, what do you mean secure from the past? I've had, I have a past. All of us have a past. We look back at the past, and we say, well, does that set me free from memories of Aunt Miltilda or somebody like that? No. All right. What is this past in reference to? Well, by the time you work your way all the way down to verse number 3, verse number 4, even verse number 2, you're talking about the issue of the law of sin, the law of death. That past. The past that involved sin and the issue of death. Secure, free, are interesting words to set next to those phrases, sin and death. Condemnation is a big word, isn't it? Matter of fact, you heard it, just as we said it here this morning. You heard the word, and, and no doubt something triggered in your mind when you hear that word condemnation. Because we do mentally define as we think. We, we define such words. So I thought it'd be interesting at least to help us a bit here this morning to go online and pull up their dictionary and say, well, what do you want to define this as? Always interesting to do that. Uh, there were two definitions given to me from this one source. And the first definition read like this. Condemnation is the expression of very strong disapproval or censure. It's got the synonyms of criticism, uh, denunciation, even vilification. And I stopped with that word and I said, hmm. To vilify something. To make someone a villain. You know, I don't even have to give you an illustration for that. This world, our culture, our politics have done that very well in the last year or more, haven't they? If you're somebody on the other side of the fence from a position, the best thing to do is vilify the person on the other side. It's been going on for a while. But to express your opinion, to show your disapproval, to criticize, you make villains of those who have others' opinions. Now, that's one side of condemnation. Interesting word there. Now, that's really dealing with opinions, what I think or you think, and it may be right and it may be wrong, but we use that side of condemnation on occasion. But there is another side that I think probably you went to first, and that is the legal description of the word. Definition number two has to do with the legal concept of condemnation. You see, there are steps in the concept of a legal issue where a crime would be committed, um, arrest would be made, accusations go with that, there's a trial for the particular crime, uh, perhaps the verdict is given as a guilty verdict, and then sentence follows that. Leads to the punishment phase of that legal 
concept of condemnation. And that's what it comes down to. It's someone who has been sentenced. Somebody who is punished for a particular crime. Condemnation is to give judgment against them. Uh, to uh, even come up with the punishment. Hold your place right here in Romans 8 for a minute. Go to chapter 5. There, it's interesting, this word condemnation that's used in Romans 8.1 is only used three times in all of Scripture. Now, there are other words for it that we translate condemnation in other passages. But in this particular word, it's used three times, and Paul uses them, all three, and they're right here in Romans. One in chapter 8, and the other two in chapter 5. Now, the two in chapter 5 are not happy places, and I'm not sure chapter 8, the word itself, is a happy word either. But here in chapter 5, verse number 16, he says that the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. Now, there's more to the first verse, but let's stop right there and notice what we had just seen. Main words. Sin, judgment, transgression, condemnation. Those words go together. That's the process that leads to the judgment. Again, in verse number 18. So then, as though one transgression... I'm sorry. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even... So, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to life to all men. Now, again, another verse that really takes you uh, to a place where you have to think, right? But let's look at the first half of it one more time. One transgression resulted in condemnation to all men. What was that transgression? The sin in the garden, Adam took of the fruit, and ate. One sin. One man spread to all of us. You want to blame him? You want to say you would have done better? Well, okay. One transgression. You know, that's all it takes to be condemned. One transgression. One sin. You know the verse in Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. You know what's interesting in that? As much as we say it and we know it so well, sin is singular in that verse. He didn't say the wages of sins, because, you know, if that was plural, then we would go into this little department of, well, how many? And we would justify 12. Or we'd say, well, you know, 25 is not so bad compared to, you know, my neighbor who does 54. You know, we, we would do that kind of, you know, we're rationalized, we're justified, we're, we're trying to say our number is small compared to other people. One is what scripture points to us. It does not give us wiggle room there. One, sin. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin you know, I, I've never studied criminal justice. I've, I've never really had a desire to. I've watched a lot of Perry Mason mysteries, so I, I've got something at least. But uh, the basic thing of the act of a crime, somebody is accused, they're arrested, they're put on trial, there's judgment, 
you know, punishment if they're convicted. We understand that. We understand the system. Now, let's put ourselves in that place. Let's talk about God's legal system here and the fact that we have sinned. How many did it take? One. Now, Scripture says we're born sinners. Some people would debate that, you know, of course. But, you know, it doesn't take long to prove it. It doesn't, does it? By the time you're two, you've already mastered it. Do you know that? You ever watch a two-year-old? You always wish they'd turn three? Why do, what do we call the twos? Terrible! I wonder why! You've been down that road. We talk about sinners. But here's the reality. is All it takes is the one sin. And no doubt we've added up that many so far. And because of that, we stand accused before God's throne. Now, not only does God's word accuse us, but you know, we have an enemy who stands before his throne accusing us day and night. That's a description of Satan. And by the way, you have a conscience in you, and guess what it likes to do? It throws accusations all the time. The conscience accuses us too. We've got all kinds of accusations going our way here. And the judgment is given in Scripture. The judgment is guilty in Scripture. And the wages of sin is death. There's the condemnation. And in case you're wondering, well, you know, that sounds like eventually, you know, we could get in trouble for that. Where it is John chapter 3 verse 18 says that we are already condemned. It's not a matter of waiting for that judgment day. The judgment day already has come. It says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're under God's condemnation right this minute. Right this minute. In cartoons, they used to paint somebody's... uh, description or they drew it this way that if they were having a bad day there was a cloud over their head if you could think theologically those who do not know Christ as Savior condemnation is above their head it's there you know that would be a great tool if we could visualize such a thing when it comes to evangelism you know exactly who to go after look for the guy with the cloud on his head wouldn't that be easy But that's reality. We're judged already. If we do not believe in Jesus, we're judged already. The vast number of people in our world today are in that position. Condemned. And if they do not come to know Christ as Savior, that's their state for eternity when they leave this world. Condemned. And it will never, ever, ever change. That's frightful. That is frightful. So folks, look at Romans 8.1. As a believer, look at it again. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Paul starts with the therefore though, doesn't he? Therefore. Where does he get that? Well, if you backed up into chapter number 7... You know what he's wrestled with all the way through it. He says, well, I I believe in the Lord and I I want to do what's right. 
And for some reason, I'm just doing the opposite of that. And I'm doing what's wrong, even though I know what's right. I, I rest, have you ever been there? Some of us live in chapter 7, don't we? And as we march through chapter 7, he comes to a conclusion in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body, this body of this death? And then he starts this, thanks be to God. He knows he can't do it. Thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord. So on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, I am serving the law of sin. Therefore, you see, it's a natural progression. There's no break in his thought. We put breaks there. We put an eight in front of that verse. Then we put a little one there to signify eight verse one. But Paul didn't write that that way. Matter of fact, if you wanted to get the fuller concept, his issue started way back in chapter 3. He started talking about sin particularly, and working his way through 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, and this devastating sin, it condemns us on every corner. We turn this way and it condemns, we turn this way, it condemns. It condemns us in our heart, it condemns us in our actions, it condemns us in our mind. And Paul, no wonder he's come to this conclusion. Wretched man that I am. He's been on that topic for four or five chapters already. So now he comes to a very refreshing place. Freedom from judgment. This is his conclusion. Therefore, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now, let's look at the verse carefully. What does Paul want us to see? What is his conclusion showing us here? It does not say in verse 1 of chapter 8 that there was no crime. It does not say there was no sin. Does it? It does not say that there are no accusations. It does not say that. It does not say there was no trial. It does not say that there wasn't a judgment for that sin. It does not say that either. For there are the realities of our condition. There is a crime. This verse does not erase that. There is accusation. This verse does not erase that. There is a trial, and it doesn't erase that. And there is a judgment, and it does not erase that. But it does deal with condemnation. The punishment. I came with that judgment. The punishment for that sin. The punishment that goes with the accusations. The punishment as a result of the trial. Here's a question for you. How is it possible, being guilty, that we could be released from the punishment? Grace is a beautiful word, isn't it? In our day and age, if we see somebody put on trial, 
and as we would say, get away with it, we think there's injustice somehow. We find somebody to blame, that that shouldn't have happened that way. But think of this theologically here. The fact is this, if the punishment has been paid, it is no longer required. Here's the legal side. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's after Romans. 2 Corinthians, it's not very far down the road. Chapter number 5. Verse number 21. This is the legal description of what has just happened. He, that's God, made him, that's Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. Who was that? Jesus Christ. Knew no sin. That means he was sinless. To be sin on our behalf. That's substitute. He's our substitute. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He made Him. He made Him. Who knew no sin. Let's go to the bigger context. You're right there. Look back up to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? Oh, do you like those words? He's a new creation. He's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Look at verse 18. Now all these things are from whom? God. You did not manipulate this. I did not manipulate this. We were in no position to. These are from God. Who reconciled us. We are the recipients. He reconciled us to himself. Wow! Does that mean he loves you? Think of that. He didn't reconcile you just so you're tolerable. He reconciled you to himself. Through Christ, who gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 19. You want it more powerful. It gets stronger. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he had the right to do it. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Wow! So verse 21 comes in that context. How did he do it? Christ, who knew no sin, was to all legal effects here, made sin for us. He was made sin for us. That we who believe in him, in all legal effects, are made the righteousness of God in him. This is his plan. This is His work and His declaration, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That's His statement. Now, we can take that legally 
and find it very satisfying, can't we? We can find relief in that. But I want to tell you this. He didn't just do it so it goes down in a legal black and white format. This is personal. It goes far beyond just legal. It's personal. Because like a judge who might set you free, and then you never see that judge again, God set you free so you could be with him. It's personal. So much more to it. I love, absolutely love Isaiah 53. The power of these words. I'm just going to start reading it to you again. I've done it so many times, I know. But listen to these words. Isaiah 53 starts in, I'll start with verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. You know what that's saying? If we were standing there at the cross, we would have said, Ah, you deserved it. Just like everyone else standing there was pretty much saying the same thing. He deserved to be stricken of God. He was, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. By His scourging we are healed. There's a song I love. Sang it once for you, I believe. But I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. Those nails were mine. That beating was mine. It was yours, too. I hate to think of this, but when we sin, do you not realize that those were the things Jesus died for? We are the contributors to this. It was our sorrows. It was our transgressions. It was our iniquity. It was our transgressions and sins and what we deserved, he took. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's a powerful chapter. But you know what? It's a personal one. Because by the time it's over, verse number 10 says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. You say, Why? Well, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his day in the good pleasure. The Lord will prosper in his his hand. And the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. His knowledge, this righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. You are his satisfaction. You are his pleasure. You are why he went to that cross. Remember the passage that said, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross? That was you. That he was thinking of. It's personal. It's personal. Not just a legal arrangement here. But we're talking about bigger things. And if we had time in chapter 6, of Romans, we talk about that union we have in Him. 
were united with him in death, were united with him in the grave, were united with him in the resurrection, were united with him because of what he's done. And because the Holy Spirit indwells us, we have one life with him. He's our head. And we are the members of his body. That's one life. That's what he's brought about because of this. You have been declared justified. You have been declared righteous. You have been declared standing in grace before his throne. Blameless is the way Job or Jude describes it. You're not under his wrath. You possess eternal life through Jesus Christ. One one of my favorite Greek uh, helps to go to, Kenneth Wiest, he was a professor at Moody Bible Institute many years ago. Taught Greek, came up with some excellent Greek helps for us. And he loved to use this phrase. When, when we're talking, I'll get technical just for five seconds. When we talk about the dative case in uh, the noun system, it's talking about being in the sphere of something. Right? He always gives this picture of, of a circle. And when you're in the circle, you're in the sphere of it. And that's the phrase used all the way through the New Testament. In Christ Jesus. You're in Christ. Inside the sphere that represents Christ. Got a mental picture all of a sudden? Here's what it is. In Christ Jesus, no condemnation. Outside of Christ Jesus, condemnation. See the difference? Inside. But be very clear right here. Only inside Christ Jesus. Only in Christ Jesus. God does not hesitate to say it that way. Our world doesn't like that, by the way. They say, you can't claim that. Oh, yes, I can. Because God said so. He makes a claim. He makes a statement, and no other religion on earth can make it. None. No other religion can set you free from God's condemnation. None. It's only in Christ Jesus. That's it. Period. Only in Christ Jesus can there be forgiveness. Only in Christ Jesus can there be no condemnation. Only in Christ Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through Christ Jesus. Now, the world can argue with that all they want, but they've got to stand before that same God someday. And they will find that he was very accurate, and he doesn't, doesn't change his mind. How do I know that's true? He gave his son to prove it. He will not go back on what he has promised his son. He told his son that everyone who believes in you will have everlasting life. Is God going to change his mind? Not at all. No condemnation. That's what the verse says. Now, let's look at verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1, one more time. And let's look at the word now. Now. You see it in there, don't you? 
Don't miss that little word. You know what it means. It means now. It doesn't mean, hang on a few minutes. It doesn't mean wait till later. It means now. It's in the present. Right now. This immediate time. Right now. No condemnation. Believer, you're not waiting for it. It's now. In Christ Jesus, it's now. You see, in life, we're brought to places where we struggle, right? We struggle. Struggle a lot. We're brought to places in this life where we mourn, not only the loss of others, but the, 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 the results of sin and all the other. Oh, we mourn of so many things. In this life, we can weep, can't we? We can be brought to tears very easily. In this life, you can be disciplined. God is not sloppy on theology. (laughs) He disciplines his own because he loves them. But in this life, in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You may have everything else, but you don't have that. No condemnation. You struggle, but there's no condemnation. You mourn, but there's no condemnation. You get disciplined, yes. No condemnation. Try wrapping your brain around that a little bit. Tough. But it's true. Here's a big picture for you. Generally, when we think of security of the believer, we look forward to it as a future concept, don't we? We look at the security of the believer. Oh, it has to do with eternity. It has to do with my Christian uh, salvation. It means I can't lose it. I have no fear of it being taken away. Yes, that's all part of it. But that's not all of it. Our security also deals with the past. It deals with the punishment for sin. You are secure in this fact, in Christ Jesus. You are secure. There is no condemnation. That will not change. He doesn't gloss over it. It's not up to what we deserve, (laughs) thankfully. Matter of fact, he did something so much better. So much better than just saying, hey, don't worry about your past. He said, right now, in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. He wrote those words. So that you would have confidence in Him right now. The past. He has dealt with the punishment. Done. Done. Might there be a scar still? Unfortunately. I've got one on my hand. Right there. I looked on His hand first. You know what? It's because it's been a long time since I thought about that. It's right there. My brother took a baseball hat out of my hand. It had that little metal clip on the little top. And that's where I was holding it. I must have been six or seven years old. And it cut me pretty deeply. I got in trouble for that for some reason. I'm not sure why. Nevertheless, the scar is still there. The scar is still there. Here's something beautiful for you. Just a thought. Spurgeon noted this in his, his notes on Romans 8. This chapter begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. Put those two together. Beautiful. Kenneth Weist, 
the one I referenced just a minute ago about the sphere said this, Therefore now, this is his translation, Therefore now, there is not even one bit of condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not one little bit. So if we're going to talk about security, let's start where it begins for us. Begins in the past. Begins in the past. You know what? If you're still carrying things in your heart, and you feel like God is still angry with you about these things, and you've talked to Him about it, and you've you've asked for forgiveness, and then you said, no, I don't know if I really got it. You know that whole thing, don't you? If you're still carrying something like that in your heart, I want you to go back to this verse and ask a simple question. Did God mean this when He said this? Is God telling you the truth? If you conclude that he is, which I trust you will, drop it and walk away. You're the only one carrying it. He's not. He's not. That condemnation is gone. But folks, I hope that you just find refreshment in those very words today. Because that's what I do when I read these words. How beautiful it is that our God cares that much about us that He sets us free from condemnation. As we go into prayer, do you think you should say thank you maybe? Let's start there. Heavenly Father, thank you is the word we want to say right now, though it seems so weak in light of the whole topic that's before us. To say thank you, Lord, is That's all we can do. We respond to you, Lord, and we see what your word says, and we're overwhelmed again with what this thing called grace is all about. It gets bigger every single time we look at it. We can't keep pace with it, Lord, and maybe that's the whole point. We can't keep pace with your love, with your grace, with your forgiveness, with what you have said in your word, it's magnificent. And it's greater still. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done for us. Lord, may we walk from this room with relief. May we walk from this room with our heads held up. Not because of what we have done. No, This is certainly not an issue of pride. It's nothing that we can take credit for. But to know, just to know, that you have taken the condemnation from us. That's amazing, Lord. And more than that, you've placed it upon your Son, our Savior, our Lord, our our dear friend, took our place. And how do we respond to that, Jesus? How do we respond to that? That you loved us that much. That you gave your life for us. That you paid for our sin. Every sin. You did that. How amazing that is. May it never be forgotten by us. Never be forgotten. How can we? 
when we see again what you did for us. How you must love us. How you must love us. What an amazing theme for us to start this year on. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Praise you. This day and always. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.